word this morning comes from Joshua chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to him, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Then the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal at the east border of Jericho. And all twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you. Until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Well, if you're not already there, um, turn to Joshua chapter 4. <laughs> Joshua chapter 4 in the Old Testament. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. Uh, we are grateful that you um, have not uh, left us, uh, nor have you forsaken us, that you are uh, continually with us. And we are 
So thankful that you are a God who keeps to his promises to his children. So God, I pray now that you would open our ears to hear uh, what you have to show us from your word uh, concerning this topic um, that is so important um, to you, um, and we see it uh, throughout the scriptures of parenting. So I pray, God, that, that all of us would be attentive to what you have to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we, we have been doing a two-week series on parenting, so this is the last week for that. Um, and then next week, we're going to do just a one-day uh, sermon on friendship, and then we will uh, move back into the Catholic epistles with First John after that. We'll walk through the Advent season um, all the way through the end of the year with First John. So uh, last, last week I mentioned a few uh, styles of parenting, um, and then I came across an article this week in the New Yorker um, that is titled, uh, Helicopter Parents Are Last Year's Model. So when it goes on to describe in a, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way um, more styles of parenting that go uh, just beyond the ones mentioned last week that Probably, I mean, are, are actually quite true um, and relevant for us, but I'm just going to read, read these parenting styles in, in a short description. Uh, the first one that they mentioned was uh, warring blender parents. These parents will absolutely liquefy obstacles to their children's future success, but they are not above dicing someone who just annoys them. Then you have pasta maker parents. They, they roll teachers, babysitters, and other people's kids flat and then slice them up into different shapes depending on their whims and what works best with a sauce made from pushy relatives, nannies, and admissions officers. Third is leaf blower parents. Very loud and aggressive. They don't actually deal with stuff so much as dramatically blow it around so that someone else will clean it up. Then you have drone parents. These are stealthier than helicopter parents. They use uh, location services on phones, uh, ring doorbells, and old baby monitors to track their children. Although seemingly quiet and unobtrusive, they will appear out of the blue and annihilate anyone whom they perceive to be blocking their children's momentum toward the Ivy League. Some of the teachers in the room are amening. I can hear you. Swiffer parents, seemingly efficient at cleaning up their children's messes, but actually not so great with the really big ones. These are, oh, these are meant to be funny. So you can, <laughs> I hear slight giggles, but you can laugh at these. Uh, trash compactor parents, uh, make every member of the family do things together whether they want to or not. We did that on Friday with family pictures. <laughs> Air fryer parents, either completely shut down or blasting intense heat, causing a protective crust to form around their children, are considered healthier since they don't use conventional methods, but end up being just as bad for you as everyone else. The two more. Riding mower parents. These are lawnmower parents too lazy to stand while they clear a path for their children. And then finally, iPhone 6 parents. Old, sluggish, and often slow on the uptake, although sometimes more reliable than more up-to-date parents despite being quirky and often cracked. So, lots of styles out there, <laughs> needless to say. But what are, we, what are we trying to do with all of these styles of parenting? Well, ultimately, what we're, what we're trying to do is that we are trying to pass something on to our kids. 
Maybe it is a good education. You want your kid to get into uh, that good school or, or family legacies or, or good morals or a certain way of doing things or certain traditions that we want to pass on to our kids. So we do all we can to make that happen for them. So if that means steamrolling other people and other people's kids, uh, we will do that if that's what it takes. And as Christian parents and as the church at large, we also have this same exact opportunity. But rather than passing off traditions or morals or I want my child to get into you know, my alma mater or whatever it might be, we want to pass on the baton of faith to our kids. We want to leave them a gospel legacy, no matter what college they go to. So our friends Ray and Janie Ortland have always been fond of saying, they're in their 70s now, they have uh, grandchildren, but they were always fond of saying, or always are fond of saying, to the next generation. To the next generation. That's what they live for. Even to this day, they still live for that, which I think is a, a great rally cry for the church. Because we, all of us, all of us in this room, not just parents, should be passing the baton of faith on to the next generation. And this is something that we see spread throughout the scriptures. And this morning, I want us to look at this Old Testament passage uh, in Joshua chapter 4, because I think it gets, gets to the point that I'm trying to make here very practically. Okay? So, so some of the, some background of Joshua, uh, just so you know it, so we're not just jumping in blindly. Uh, Joshua is now the, the newly appointed leader of God's people after the death of Moses. So he's just been installed as the leader in Moses' place. So we have in, in, in Joshua chapter 1 um, this rep- repeated phrase that God says to Joshua over and over and over again. He says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous. That's what he says to him over and over. You might be familiar with that. And then in chapter 2 is when Rahab hides the spies and redeems her entire family by doing so, and so much so that we see uh, Rahab joins the family line of Jesus. And you can look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 to see that, which is incredible. And then in chapter 3, they, they cross over the Jordan River in, in the same fashion as God's people did when they came out of Egypt. So it's a very familiar story. And then we come to our text in chapter 4. So I want to I want to draw out the truth from this text today that will hopefully encourage you toward leaving a legacy of faith to the next generation. And I believe it happens in two places, two primary places this happens. One is in the family or in the home. And the second place this happens is in the church. So one is in the family, two is in the church. So first in the family. Look at verse 6 again. In verse 6, it says, When your children ask in time to come. When your children ask in time to come. So this is a key phrase for us uh, to see right here because all of the verses before this are a ritual that God has the people walk through. So in verses 1 through 5, they're walking through this ritual. He's giving them instructions. So verse 2, he says, take 12 men from each tribe. So, so that means he wants all the tribes and all the families of God's people to be represented in this ritual that they're about to perform. 
Then in verse 3, he tells these men, take 12 stones out of the Jordan, so a stone that represents each tribe and each family within God's people. And then in verse 6, he hones in on passing this truth on to the next generation through this visible act with these 12 men and these 12 stones. So when God says to, 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 God, to, to his people, when your children ask, he's implying that they will ask. God's plan, we see here in verse 6, involves the coming generation. So God was not just working something for his people at that present time, even though he was. He was delivering them. He was doing great miracles among them. He was bringing them into the promised land at this point in time. But he was also doing this for the coming generations. And that's all the way up to us today. So God's plan involves the coming generation. So this means that we are to, to do certain acts as the church that, and as families to provoke these sorts of questions within our own children. So here in the text, God has the people construct a, a memorial out of stones from the river they're crossing so that, so that when later families pass, so when this, when this generation of God's people is long gone, uh, hopefully this, this memorial will still be standing. And so when the families come, future families come, they will pass this uh, memorial with their kids, and their kids will look at these stones stacked up together and say, why is that there? Why, why are those stones there? Why are there 12 stones? Why are they stacked in that sort of way? Why are they right here by the river? Can you explain that to me, mom or dad? So in my study at my house, I have several items um, uh, scattered about in my study on the shelves and hanging and things like that. A couple pieces of art, a Topa Chico bottle. So if you want to know more about that, um, you can ask me later. But these are all symbols that remind me of significant moments uh, in my life, or they just remind me of people in my life. So, so they're simply there to provoke me to thankfulness, uh, to prayer, and just to, to remind myself of the moment or of that particular person. But it also lends itself to good conversations with people who come to my study. So I get to relay to them what these things mean to me. So the question is, so what, are, what are some of those things in our lives as Christians and as the church that will provoke questions from our children concerning the faith we proclaim? What are some things that we are doing in our own lives that will provoke these sorts of questions from our children about the faith that we proclaim? To quote John Nielsen from his book, Faith at Last, which I think there's one more copy out on the book table if you want to pick it up, but I think it's the best parenting book out there. He says this, I think the biblical model for passing along the faith from generation to generation is grounded in families. Fathers and mothers telling their kids about God and the church being continually built up through the evangelization of the younger generation. So the first place this starts is in the home. Because this is where gospel training and gospel discipleship begins. This is how God designed it to work. So in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, a very well-known verse, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart 
from it. So as parents, now we don't know the outcome of all of our children. Just because we do that doesn't mean automatically that all of our children are going to come to know Christ. I know that. I'm not naive to that. But it's still something that we are called to do and to be faithful at. So as parents, we are to infuse daily life, moment by moment, day by day, with the gospel. We are to infuse daily life with the gospel. So I'll often quote Deuteronomy 6-7 to parents who think it's the church's responsibility to do the work that is primarily theirs. And so I'll quote this to them. Deuteronomy 6-7, You shall teach them diligently to your children. And, and, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You will do that, Mom. You will do that, Dad. I'm not in your house. I can't do that in your house. I can't tuck your, your kids in the bed at night and have family worship with them. That is something you are called to do. Because here in Deuteronomy 6-7, so Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, uh, you have reality. Because even in this uh, particular moment in time when Deuteronomy 6-7 was being written, uh, these people were busy and active. They were, they were on the move. They were, they were going about their days. It's not just us who live in a busy culture. It was always happening. And God knows this. He knows that we are always on the move. He knows that we have other things that are going on. He knows that we we can't practically always just sit down and have these perfectly planned out family worship moments where we read the Bible, our kids memorize it perfectly, and all of our kids come and know Jesus and are baptized. God knows that that's not reality. The majority of the time, I'd say 99% of the time, you will not have perfectly structured church environments for your kids to hear the truth of the gospel. Most of that is going to take place in your home. So, because of that, we have to take advantage of the car rides to the grocery store. We, we have to, to take advantage of the, of the play dates in the park with, with friends we have to take advantage of the mealtime conversations that we have um, around the dinner table. We have to take a, take advantage of those of those talks before bed, or if you have teenagers when they come and tuck you in at night, and you have those talks in your own bed. But you have to take advantage of those opportunities. That's what God's word is telling us. So I can tell you that some of the best gospel conversations in our family and with my kids have come during these seemingly mundane moments. And we've done everything. We've done the family worship. We've done, we've done everything. And, and the, the best questions come in the car rides at night. All of those times. The mundane times. Because we're always having an ongoing conversation about the things of God that permeates every part of our family life continually. So because we're intentionally creating space for, for genuine conversations about Jesus, about the Bible, about the Christian life, about everything going on in the culture, my kids are comfortable asking those sorts of questions. Which means that you are inviting your kids to ask whatever questions are provoked 
Nothing is off limits. So if my kids um, doubt and they have questions and they disagree with me theologically, because if you have babies now, you're like, oh, that will never happen. It's, it's coming. So just prepare yourself. You think you're tired now. Just wait till you have teenagers. But they're wonderful at the same time. But nothing is off limits. So you're inviting your kids to ask these sorts of questions. And so the question for you is, does the culture in your home allow for this? Does the culture in your home allow for this? Does it allow doubts and questions and beliefs that you may not necessarily like or agree with in the moment? Does it allow for that? So we, like I said, we've had to walk our kids through doubts about the Christian life and, uh, and questions about hard and sensitive uh, topics happening in our culture. But we've always sought to cultivate that sort of, of, of culture in our home where nothing was off limits. So another, another quote from John Nielsen. He says, I remain convinced that as our children see the way that, that we naturally speak about and apply the biblical gospel along the way, as Moses describes, they will begin to see more and more of its power, reality, and influence on everyday life. Let me just read that again. I remain convinced that as our children see the way that we naturally speak about and apply the biblical gospel along the way, as Moses describes, they will begin to see more and more of its power, reality, and influence on everyday life. So, if you're quoting your favorite news anchor or podcast host or political pundit or Instagram celebrity instead of God's word, if you're driven to despair rather than hope, if, you're, if your default is anxiety rather than prayer, if you like to binge Netflix or stare at your phone rather than get in God's Word, if you decide to sleep in on Sundays or making excuses not to gather with God's people, then your kids will not see the power, reality, and influence of the gospel in everyday life. They won't. But if you naturally speak about and apply the biblical gospel, and this doesn't have to look perfect, then you're doing well. If you're able to point your eyes to the hills, as the psalmist says, consistently because you know that is where your help comes from, you know what? Your kids will naturally point their eyes to the hills because they see you doing it. If you're able to pray when there are needs and concerns um, that are overwhelming and, and should drive you to anxiety or could drive you to anxiety, your kids are more than likely to do the same, to remind you to go to God in prayer. If they see that your faith in God is not a game you play one day a week, but infuses your daily life, there is a greater chance that their faith will also look the same as yours. If they see you aligning your life and your schedule around your, your church family and, and making gathering with the church each week as priority, there is a much greater chance that they will do the same one day and they will love the church. So this happens first in the home. But the next place this happens is in the church. 
So provoking questions should happen within this Christian community amongst the next generation. But, but if you don't have a good theology of the church, I talked about this last week a little bit, if you don't have a good ecclesiology, which is the theological word for a theology of the church, this is going to sound foreign to you. Meaning, if you only see the church as a place you go on Sundays, or, or just a place to, to drop your kids off to, to the youth or to the children's minister, which we have neither of those, but, you know, and you don't see the church as who you are, you will miss the point. Because it's, it's vitally important that as a Christian, you are a committed and faithful member of a local church body. So this is not only for you, but this is also for your children. And I know, I know all of you who are members of this church and who, 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 who confess, uh, uh, Christ as your savior would say, I want my kids to love Jesus one day. I want my kids to be a part of a local church one day. You would say that. I know you would. So gathering to worship with your family and with your church family each week is a testimony to the truth, reality, and relevancy of the gospel. So this is what we see in verses 8 through 10 of Joshua chapter 4. This is happening. So look there with me. Let me read that again for us. Verses 8 through 10. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. So what we're seeing here is the people of God obey and then they come together as the people of God to make this happen. So this is, this is God's people together creating intentional space in which gospel conversations can and will happen amongst the next generation. Where, where people and children can ask these questions of inquiry concerning the things of God. So, so what this means and what you're seeing here in Joshua 4 is that it wasn't just mom and dad's responsibility, although that's primary. It wasn't just the pastor's responsibility or the priest. The priest just stood there in the water while this happened. It was everyone's responsibility. Everybody there had to obey exactly as God was calling them to obey. So what this means for us is, and for you is it might be time, if you aren't doing this already, to make a new investment in the lives of other people in this church. And then, inviting these people, inviting these believers into the lives of your children as they grow up in the faith. So in one of the ways you do this is by being around them as much as you possibly can. So we have several people like this from this church in our kids' lives as currently, and they don't lead them in Bible studies and, and all that, and all that's a good thing, but, but they're just present and consistent believers in my kids' lives. And, and we see fruit from that. 
So other ways we seek to, to provoke and answer questions from kids uh, within the church is through our worship gathering. So we use a number of elements in our service that are three things. They're repetitive, they're corporate, and they are observable. Okay, repetitive, corporate, and observable. Um, and, and we also keep kids in the service, um, you know, five years old and up, and, and we do that on purpose um, so that our kids are able to see those three things. So they're able to see the repetitiveness and the corporate aspect of worship and the observable acts of worship as well. We do that on purpose. That's not just because we don't have enough nursery volunteers. We want your kids to know how to worship. And the way they worship is by looking at you and me. So our our liturgy structure stays pretty much the same from week to week. You've probably noticed that. And we do that to help you become familiar with a rhythm of worship. So whether you know it or not, the world around you also has a liturgy that you and your children live in most of the week. Most of the week you are in the liturgy of the world and it is trying to form you and shape you. And for some of you, you know this because it's doing a really good job of forming and shaping your heart and mind. And the world's liturgical rhythm um, does not point us to the glory and worship of God. And so we try to keep this repetitive so we learn it each week. So I'll just let me just give you an overview of what our, our service looks like, okay? So first, God calls us. God, our creator and redeemer, always is always the one who is initiating worship. I know that Stephen or, or Tyler or whoever is leading worship will, will, will do the call to worship. That's not them calling you to worship. That's God calling us to worship through his word. That's why we use a passage of scripture to do that. God is initiating worship. He's calling us into the presence of the holy, and we respond to that calling with joyous praise and celebration. This is not a funeral dirge. Joyous praise and celebration. The second thing that, that God does is He cleanses us. So this is, this is why we confess our brokenness and our need for healing and grace and hear the words of assurance that the gospel is first and foremost for sinners. That's why we do that every single week. To remind ourselves not only that we are broken, but that we are also broken and in need and that God forgives us when we repent of our sins. Third, God consecrates us. So we learn what it means to, to follow God in the way of Jesus through, through the preaching of, of God's word, through reflecting on God's story told in the Bible. And then fourth, God communes with us. And he does that through the practice of the sacraments of communion and baptism. And I, I can just say, just as a side note, that, that these practices of communion and baptism have been some of the most effective evangelistic tools when it comes to sharing the gospel with our kids because they're curious about that. They think it's it's kind of neat and cool to to come up and and dip bread in in juice and 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 what all, what all of that means and and it's and it's neat to see somebody dunked under water, you know, what is all of that about? And those questions we those those are those are questions that are provoked from these practices that we do consistently some every single week. And so it gives us an opportunity to share the gospel with our children. And then fifthly, God commissions us. 
So we are sent into the world to love and bless it and to make Jesus known, and then we are inviting others to follow him throughout the week. So all of these rituals, all of these these kind of liturgical practices that we have are pointing our kids not to themselves and how good they are, but they're pointing our kids to the glory of God. That's what we want. And in turn, we are leaving our kids a legacy of faith. And this is, these, are, these are what Joshua establishes in, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. This is what he's establishing amongst God's people. And then in verses 11 through 20, when they pass over, they all safely pass, uh, pass through the river. They establish uh, Joshua as their leader. And then they, then they begin to get settled into this new land that God is preparing for them and giving to them. And then you have verses 21 through 24. And Joshua, the newly appointed leader, re-emphasizes this same practice that was just mentioned in verses 6 through 7. So he says this in verses uh, 21 through 24. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. So even in the story, he's pointing back to the greater story of the, of the work that God did in the people crossing over the, the river in Exodus, which he dried up for us until we passed over. And why did he do this? Anticipating the question of their child so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That's why he did it. And that's why I'm telling you that, because I want you to fear fear the Lord your God forever. And, And this is what we are to continually and consistently do as parents and as the church for our children continually pointing them to the reality and the relevancy of the God of the universe and consistently living a life that illustrates our trust in our God who has saved us. And we illustrate this to our children. And I would just say, just as a side note, and this isn't in my notes right here, one of the, because some of you might, parents might be really discouraged. Some of you might have cussed at your children this morning. It happens. And you need to do the one thing that I think is the best piece of parenting advice that I can give you. You need to repent to your kids. You need to ask forgiveness from them. They need to know that they, they need to know that, that, that you know that you are not perfect and that you are not on a pedestal higher than them just because you are the parents. They need to know that you are fully dependent upon Jesus to save you and to rescue you and to help you to parent. And so that's the best piece of parenting advice that I give to people nowadays is be the chief repenter in your home. Don't be a hypocrite. And the only way that we can do this, the only way that we do this is, is, is because Jesus has done this for us. Jesus has laid down his life so that we could have a perfect relationship with a heavenly father. We have a father who, who parents us perfectly. That, that, that God as our Father parents us 
way better than we will ever be able to parent our own children. We won't, we won't get, we won't get even close to what God has done for us as our Heavenly Father. So we are taking our cues from Him. We are trying to be just, uh, just at least a shadow of what He has done for us in Christ. And this is the Father who saves His children. So that one day, our children will trust in this same God to save them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are our Father. It, what a, what a, a privilege it is that we are able to, to even call you Father. Uh, the God of the universe, the, the Almighty, the, the, the Most Holy One, the God of gods, the King of kings, you are our Father. And you deeply love us. And so, God, I pray that, that, that we, as your children, um, would, would recognize you as our Father and that we would, um, even in our own imperfections of, of parenting and even our discipleship of this next generation, um, for those in our church, even though it's, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be imperfect and we're not gonna do it right all the time, we can trust that we are taking our cues from, from how you parent us that we can look to you to see what you have done to, to draw us back to yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that as we give the gospel to the next generation, that we would not be dependent upon ourselves, but that we would always be dependent upon Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.